Hello, and welcome to the Podcast of Power, a She-Ra and the Princesses of Power companion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other, Jane. And today we are going to be talking about She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, Season 1, Episode 4, Flowers for She-Ra, which I think is mostly a, a sort of light romp of an episode wouldn't you agree yeah it's uh it's one of the kind of more monster of the week kind of ones got a little bit of a little bit of a power rangers thing going on in that sense just kind of like here's your mission let's go do it um which is which is nice i I think that it breaks it up a little bit from uh, some of the more serious ones we've had so far I, I think we will find that a, a, a fair amount of season one is kind of these monster of the week episodes, uh, as, as they sort of start to seed plot arcs and um, set up things later on. But for now, we're we're just trying to get all of these princesses on the same uh, on the same wavelength here. Yes, uh, as it uh, as it turns out, that's going to be pretty important to a show called Shira and the Princesses of Power. Wouldn't wouldn't quite work if it one. was just one. That was the old show. Yeah, that was the old we show. We aren't about that anymore. Need more of them. Um and we're we're starting uh off the the sort of princess introductions with Perfuma, the the princess of Plumeria, sort of a crunchy granola lady kind of character. Yeah, she's got she's got kind of a kind of a happy-go-lucky, carefree, uh, go-with-the-flow, you know, crystals and, and patchouli thing going on. Big into the crystals. She is definitely a crystal lady. Yes, you can tell. Definitely voted for Jill Stein. Oh, absolutely. She is, she is constantly charging crystals with, uh, Negative thoughts to send to mail to Hordak. Yes, very. It's very important that uh, that Hordak um, has his has his very rancid vibes um, kept in check. And the people of Plumeria, well, they're here to do it. They know exactly how to keep those rancid vibes in check, or so they think. But uh, I think we should go ahead and start this deep dive off with the the beginning of this episode there's a very interesting scene early on where glimmer is 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 kind of giving adora the tour and is it just seems sort of very oblivious to how out of place adora feels in bright moon right now and everyone is kind of like suspicious of her she she has a fight with the bed of course yeah very, but... that scene fantastic yeah getting getting uh almost devoured by the bed and then uh, killing the bed and uh, the the voice <laughs> the voice crack when she's like trying very hard to whisper loudly uh, all really really good uh, but of course of course uh, she ends up accidentally running into uh, Angela in the middle of the hallway um, Angela <laughs> is in full support of having Shira on board but she has a little bit more history with the horde than you know someone like Bo or glimmer she has very personal history with the horde it seems yeah like i think i mean i think glimmer also has like the same level of of personal history in a way but like 
I feel like for for uh, Angela, it's a lot more raw, you know. It, yeah, I mean, this happened when Glimmer was was very little, it seems, and, and she probably doesn't remember it. But um, well, I mean, we should say like Angela tells Adora that her her husband, King Micah, was uh, killed in combat with the Horde, uh, evidently. And this is, it's one of the reasons why she, she makes it very clear to Adora that she's only trusting her because Glimmer trusts her. And if she lets Glimmer down, there will be uh, severe consequences. Yeah, she uh, she does make that pretty abundantly clear that, hey, uh, you are on the thinnest ice humanly possible. Uh, tread carefully. And... Um... It's it's not exactly helped by I think Adora's lack of understanding of the the situation that she's in a lot of the times, um, especially when they get to the war room and she oh. sits in Micah's chair. Ooh, uh, it's just, bad. Yeah, literally, Ooh. I don't think it is possible for her to have done something more disrespectful than that. That is about as bad as it gets. It's Oops. a pretty big faux pas, and it's very funny, but it is also just... Oh, oof. Oof. Yeah, not ideal. Not ideal. She, um... She's got Angela's got a very regal sensibility about things. You can tell she's a very like stiff upper lip kind of lady. But boy, howdy, the where when she just stops for a second and puts her hand on uh, on the chair, uh, yeah, you can you can get some sense of uh, what she's feeling a little bit. You know, to speak a little bit more on Adora feeling so out of place and not really knowing how to act in this in this strange new environment. Um, there, there is a lot of uh, tension in this episode about that, uh, and also one very good scene where after the, this, this sort of midnight confrontation with Angela in the hallway, she does not go back to her own room. Instead, she, deci- <laughs> oh, <laughs> she yeah. decides to uh, just sleep in Glimmer's bed. Yeah, she's just, listen, all right. It's normal. It's it's normal. I don't know, I don't know how she go. got up there. I don't either. I it's not. I was thinking like maybe those ropes or something that go to the floor. But I was when we were rewatching it, I was looking and there aren't any ropes that go to the floor. So she just she just had to hardcore parkour her way up there, I guess. In the first episode, we see that she had Glimmer has these like little floating platforms that Bo can use to get up there. Ah. But I didn't see them in that scene um but let's just yeah either adora did sick flips or (laughs) she quietly she quietly did some sick flips which is very impressive she got she got swift one's help okay he's very quiet naturally he's he's very subtle very very quiet sneaky stealthy horse stealthy flying unicorn horse absolutely um but yeah uh glimmer wakes up and glimmer is like hey what are you doing in my bed? And uh, Adora doesn't really get it. You know, I mean, for her, it's like, you know, it's pre- it's pretty normal. You know, your best friend, just you sleeping in the same bed together. Uh, it's, it's pretty normal, right? Like, you know, ladies, we all been there. We all been there. It's it's very normal. It's very heterosexual. Um, But yeah, this that, that tension, not necessarily that tension, but that kind of... 
it, it carries throughout the whole episode where Adora is just trying to figure out her place in this rebellion thing after she decided to swear her her loyalty to it. And so back in the war room, they 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 finally assign Glimmer to like that that Plumeria is in need of assistance, and so they send Bo, Glimmer, and Adora out there. And I I want to talk a little bit about Angela's approach to this conflict because it is very much humanitarian aid care packages that's it do not engage the horde do not enter combat we must avoid it at all costs yeah and and that's and that is an interesting way for for someone who is as hard on the back foot as uh the rebellion's uh, leader is uh, to to do. It's a very weird stance uh, for her to take, but you know when when you consider that you know that war room was pretty empty. The only other person there that was really a uh, battlefield commander, um, other than her daughter, is uh, just this like lead of the Bright Moon Guard. And then you know you have uh, the other two princesses who were introduced, uh, Spinnerella and Atossa, but. Nobody's really sure what they do, and they didn't even really have like uh, voice lines in this episode, um, so they they essentially weren't even there. Yeah, the uh, the rebellion seems to be in dire straits when when Adora joins it. Yes, the worm is very empty. There's no there's no princesses. The ones that are there don't. Why? What, what do they do? No one knows. But um, let's talk a little bit about Plumeria and its uh, regent Perfuma. Yes, uh, Perfuma is an interesting character. Um, so she is she's kind of the the uh, the hippie princess a little bit. She's you know she's leading the what is I think implied to be like the most ancient kingdom of um, of Etheria. Like you know they have stories dating back to the original Shira and like the. Um, like an oral tradition essentially of like um talking about all the things that um the shira before adora did and um taming the beasts of beast island and all sorts of other grand uh feats yes the 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 mantisaur i believe is also mentioned yes the mantisaur gotta love the mantisaur uh, but there's actually um, something interesting I wanted to talk about uh, with uh, Perfuma, actually, is that um, she is a very heavily uh, trans woman coded character, which is really, really nice to see. Right. So we're going to have to go a little bit outside of the series itself for this, because unfortunately, they were never quite able to make it completely textual. But I think the coding is clear and strong enough that it isn't necessary. Like, so you know more about this than I do, so I'll let you carry this one on. Yeah, like, it's it's really interesting. I like it a lot. I like, uh, one of the things that I really appreciate, um, I think about the way that it was handled uh, specifically, is, you know, they... Um, the person who was responsible for uh, designing Perfuma actually um, was talking a bit on Twitter about it, and I am blanking a little bit on uh, this person's name, but I remember they were talking about how it was it was actually 
quite difficult to um, broach the topic with the the studio, and they didn't really want to. You know, they were they were already kind of fighting a bit of an uphill battle. Um, so I, I can understand why that wasn't really something that was um, super heavily pushed for. Um, and to be honest, based on Netflix's track record, I'm not 100% sure they would have even gotten it to begin with. Um, but the, the actual coding that they put into the show is really nice. Um, it's really, really refreshing to see a, uh, you know, a trans woman... Um, represented in like with with the kind of like the same amount of beauty and care as any of the other princesses I think is really nice the like uh I guess what am I trying to say she's like she's transcoded without it becoming a sticking point in her character which I think is is really important it's not something that overshadows um, any amount of uh, what she's about or who she is, it kind of is like it's just a a native fact of of her person. It's not really, it's not really like interrogated by the visuals or by the by the actions of any other characters in the show, which you can't say for a lot of other characters um, who are uh, trans coded or or even visibly uh, trans. It, yeah, the, um, the the design elements in her character design clear. They're clear without being grotesquely made or cartoonish. Like it's very, it's all extremely well done. It is, and and she, I I just I love just seeing this very specific uh, body type represented. This like. Um, She's very lanky. She's she's very lanky. She is a beanpole, and uh, you know it's she's she you know she's got like uh, she's got a a a body type that you know it's very easy for uh, for me to see myself in and for a lot of trans women to see see ourselves in. You know she's got the broad shoulders and the the you know fairly. Uh, flat chest and and whatnot. Not really a lot of a lot of curves going on. Just mostly a, a lanky beanpole of a girl. And I don't know. That's really nice to see. You know, she's kind of got the. She's just she's she's presented in that way. But it's also a presentation that's never like commented on, which I think is something that a lot of shows. Uh, fail really hard in because even if they don't actually have someone directly commenting usually there's there are visuals that are commenting on it you know maybe a character has a uh, facial expression kind of reaction or even um, the the actual camera itself I think is very much uh, a reaction it is still a a deliberate framing device and the camera also doesn't do a bunch of like the camera doesn't focus on on things and it doesn't like put her in a weird light um like i've seen um some other um contemporaries of of the show do right they treat the show treats her for the most part with the same amount of like dignity and compassion as any other character in the show which is just which is just delightful i have to say really just just a breath of fresh air. So much of this show is a breath of fresh air. 
the sh uh, the the design behind the show is is all so smart and so compassionate in a lot of ways that it's more I don't know what I would say just some of its other contemporaries perhaps are not yeah yeah there's there's some examples uh we could go into I, it's not really in the scope of this podcast but i mean i imagine there's 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 a few people who who uh, uh are, are catching catching the drift of that you gotta you gotta see the subtext you gotta read the undertones read between the lines but uh so perfuma is of course a very interesting character i think uh, as she is presented in this episode, she's a little bit goofier. They really lean into the, like, sort of hippy-dippy granola characterization for some good goofs. There's one in particular that I really like where she tells someone to get the party kale. Oh, the party kale! I, I don't love, know what that means. I love the party kale. I also very much love, like, that shot, like, the, the, the quote-unquote kale that the, um this individual is presenting in the little bowl it doesn't look like kale i mean it, it kind of just looks like lettuce but maybe it's special kale i don't know kale is just stinky lettuce hey listen all right kale's okay it's got it's it's crunchy yeah but it is just stinky lettuce though it is just stinky lettuce it's crunchy it's crunchy stinky lettuce uh so a lot of this episode uh, has to deal with Adora sort of confronting the fact that Shira has a legacy. Like, this is not... She, she sort of knew this beforehand, but she's being presented with it very explicitly by these people who have, like, de like you said, a, a deep oral tradition tie to the original Shira, and they, like this is a very mythologized figure, and so she's ver feeling very sort of like... She's not feeling like she's living up to the legend. She's not feeling like she's doing her job right. Yeah, she's, you know, she's being presented with the idea that, like, she's not just supposed to, like, bring the princesses together. She's supposed to fight and win against the Horde single-handedly. She's supposed to bring peace to the land and bring balance. She's supposed to um, very specifically be able to heal uh people and plants she's supposed to be able to heal the, the the planet itself and she has no idea how to do any of that she just knows how to hit thing with sword let's talk a little bit about that healing the planet stuff because this the, the this show uh it was brought up briefly in the sword part one i believe glimmer says something about the horde poisoning the planet yes and then we got kind of the the fern gully situation in the last the last one with all of the trees being chopped down outside the forest. There's definitely an environmental bent to the, the this show, and particularly these two episodes, um, the previous one, Raz, and and especially this one. Mm -hmm. For sure, and there's there's like a there is a very clear like you know delineation here between like the industrial power of of the horde and then the um and the rebellion and the rebellions like sort of associated communities where they're not really industrialized at all they they have no industry that um that we can see um seems to be 
mostly reliant on um, magic and uh, more like uh, almost feudal like uh, technology and um, ways of governing. The the big conflict in this episode is about the Horde trying to drive the Plumerians out of their ancestral homeland via some kind of like poison machine that is pumping a blight into the surrounding lands. Yeah, the the Mountain Dew machine. It is full of Mountain Dew. I think specifically it is full of Diet Mountain Dew because that is not you should not consume that. No That's, no yeah. living thing should be exposed to that. No, uh Diet Mountain Dew is not edible and is in fact uh, a class 3 poison which is uh very effective um, as it turns out, at trying to kill all the plants in a forest. Very effective. It is even sort of messing with Plumer uh, Plumeria's runestone, which is the source of uh, Perfuma's powers. The, what is it called? Uh, the Heart Blossom. The Heart Blossom, right. Which is a big, I like the design of this thing. It's a big old ruby thing set in the middle of a big tree i love designs like that yeah it was really really good um i liked how it was like a big cherry blossom tree essentially and um i actually liked how it was um kind of multiple stones actually like you had the big one in the center but there's like a couple like little ones on the outside and that was i don't know it was like a really nice visual actually right a lot of the environmental stuff in the show is definitely told through visuals this is the most explicit it ever gets in the story itself but like just the contrast of bright moon and the fright zone is enough to like really set that conflict right in front of you without necessarily becoming fern gully no yeah exactly like it it tries to keep it pretty subtle and i think that um that's for two reasons one because i think it is a stronger message when it is a little more subtle and it's not quite as overt um but another thing that it serves is that environmentalism is only one sort of piece of the puzzle here it's you know very much just as large a critique of colonialism and imperialism and of course the intertwining of all three of those axes together and how that affects the uh the planet and the people who live on it and i thought that was i thought that was a very strong choice to not let necessarily any one of those three um to overpower the others um or to overpower the the character narrative right like hordak isn't sitting on his big scary chair saying i want to destroy the planet He's not a Captain Planet villain. No, he he's not he's not pulling a Skeletor about the whole thing, sitting down and and just being like, "Nah, I'm going to destroy the plants today." And like he kind of says that he he does say your mission is to kill the Whispering Woods, but he's not doing it because he hates plants. He's doing it because it's a natural barrier against Bright Moon. Like this is not an exclusively like ecological driven empire for him. This is a it's a the 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 impact on the horde the horde has on the environment is almost a side effect like they aren't necessarily trying to do this stuff but it's just because hordak is the industrial guy he is the slash and burn guy this is what he knows how to do exactly it's 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 really good because it's it 
it's a parallel to to how it kind of operates um, in the real world. I don't think there's many industrial powers out here who are thinking to themselves, ah, yes, it's time to, you know, pour oil on all these ducks. I'm going to get all these ducks covered in oil now. Like, you know, it's not it's not really on their, their agenda. Their, their thing is um, acquisition of power and resources at all costs. And, uh, of course, so is Hordax. And um, the environment is standing in the way of him being able to acquire that. And he is willing to do um, anything it takes to to get to where he wants to be. So, you know, if he has to kill a few forests, you know, so be it. That's not really his problem, is it? And it, it's, it's just, I think it's a good way to kind of introduce the concept that environmental damage isn't like... It is a malicious engine of destruction, but it is also largely a side effect of the other two axes of uh, of destruction that are being presented. Right. I think this episode is also interesting because it is one of the ones that very explicitly sort of... The, the, the kind of non-violent, no f- avoid fighting at all costs philosophy that Angela and the Plumerians and the Rebellion as a whole seemingly uh, have adopted are definitely pushed against by Glimmer specifically in this episode. And I think that is a very interesting sort of dry where it's like, no, we need to act, we need to resist. We cannot just like sort of sit in stasis because this is what's happening they are they are pushing forward anyway and they're hurting things they're hurting the planet even though like you might be safe now but they're still killing the whispering woods slowly but surely no yeah exactly like um i think that that is another really interesting thing um that they do in the episode is they they very much tackle the sort of go with the flow you know the universe will eventually pay the horde back uh for its crimes is kind of the the line that they're attacking here in Plumer- in plumeria and it's you know it's a mirror of the way um angela is kind of handling her thing you know they're just a little more explicit about um about the whole thing and I, I think it's it's a good way of tackling it. Like, they aren't made out to be, like, stupid or um, even not necessarily total cowards either. Just kind of like they're expecting the revolutionary force to come in and save them. You know, they, they, sh- they shouldn't be... Um, and aren't responsible for their own uh, salvation, the, the revolutionary force is going to come in and deliver that for them in, uh, in whatever uh, way it sees fit. They're just kind of passive observers about the whole thing. And um, I think that's, that's very interesting to, um, to kind of bring up here in the context of a rebellion because you do, uh, you do see that actually quite often with, with um, people who... Uh, do feel that way do feel like the onus isn't really on them you know their their job is to do uh you know a peaceful protest about it and you know just kind of just kind of wait for for the real the real fighters to show up and kind of take care of everything for them and um you know glimmer kind of standing against that and saying hey you know we're just we're just three people 
and you have the power to do more than than we can on our own you you have to rise up too you have to participate in your own um liberation and um and it's it's really nice to see them being like yeah you know what you made a really good point uh we're gonna help you out now and they show up to the actual battle and you know they they win pretty handedly um they do kind of commit a couple of war crimes with having small children fighting in in the battle. You cannot, Perfuma. I know you're new to this. You can't. You can't bring the kids. You can't bring the small children. You can't. Listen. I I understand you didn't want to leave them at home. You're you're worried they were going to get into like the cookie jar or something. Like I get it. But but please please don't bring the children to the to the battle arena. That's probably a bad idea. But they did have. They did have the the two ladies with uh with the leaves they were they were smacking people with and and that was that was pretty good. Pretty good. It's interesting that that sort of arc for Perfuma starts once Adora reverts back to her normal form in front of everyone and reveals like no, Shira is just like a normal person as well. Like Shira is not the immortal um savior princess. She is just former horde soldier she's just a girl you know um i think that is also very important for adora's sort of character here in this in this episode is that is that one little moment there is not a lot of fright zone stuff in this episode but i think we should go back there for a little bit because there is there are some things to discuss here yeah especially between um shadow weaver and uh her fun loving boss hordak hordak is uh he's he's not the most supportive boss out there no so we see that shadow weaver is not yet yet more cracks appearing in shadow weaver's uh persona here she is clearly not all powerful she needs she has this big rock she does have this big old rock and she apparently draws power from that and also, apparently, Hordak is the one that provided her with that. Yeah, seems like a seems like a slightly unequal relationship here, perhaps. He is. Um, he he actually takes notice of her troop movements to try to recapture Adora. This episode, he's like, "What? Or what are we? Why are we wasting all of this? All of these resources on trying to get back?" this stupid turncoat she doesn't matter like let's focus on killing the whispering woods like i told you to do yeah and i think that actually um kind of turns on its head a little bit the impression that we got from the last episode um visually and um and uh through the dialogue that hordak is uh almost completely passive like working on his own thing kind of evil dictator but you know here it's like you know he is keeping an eye on things like he is still fairly he's still fairly absorbed in whatever he's working on in in the background but he has got his eyes and ears very much trained on what's going on and shadow weaver is not quite as slick as uh she might think can't get things past the leader of the horde he's it's not that easy it really isn't. He's he seems to uh, he seems to be able to uh, to definitely keep keep a secret spy on things. 
speaking of playing mind games, uh, Catra isn't in this episode a whole lot, but there are a few very important moments here with her, uh, specifically about how she is covering for Adora. She's not, she did not tell Shadow Weaver that she is also She-Ra. Yeah, that was a that was a fairly large uh, lie by omission that uh, that she decided to do there. Um, you know, we we caught that a little bit in uh, the last episode where you know she kind of alluded to Lonnie that she knows she knows She-Ra's secret. Um, she's not gonna tell you that, but you know, she I think Catcher was planning on on very much keeping that to herself as much as possible while she tries to. Uh, get Adora back, uh, back on side, back where she needs to be. Because she believes that this is just a phase. Adora is just confused. She saw some stuff that she didn't know about. She wasn't prepared for. She made a snap decision. She'll come back eventually. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of where she's at. And and Catra is very much like when when she ends up being confronted by shadow weaver about this and like you know she shows uh katra this like footage of uh shira and uh adora kind of being in the same location um katra's uh facade that she usually has up with shadow weaver kind of dissolves a little bit and she gets um pretty nervous uh pretty anxious she's like she's trying to um i think even talk uh, to herself a little bit um, with how she's talking about Adora just being confused and, and having a phase. You know, she's she's kind of trying to convince herself as much as she's trying to convince uh, Shadow Weaver. Right, she needs she needs to believe that Adora will just come back and, and she can gloat to her like, oh, I made Force Captain, you were off doing a bunch of stupid crap, but here I was moving on up in the world. Look yeah. at my shiny new badge. Moving on up to the uh, to the east side of the uh, of the fright zone. I hear the east side of the fright zone is very good. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's quite it's quite up there, but yeah, like that was that was a very it was a very interesting conversation they had. Right, I feel like this episode is a little bit lighter than than some of the other ones are, um, simply because yeah, like like we said, monster of the week episode. It's a lot of setup. Oh, there is there is one more thing. That does happen here at the very end. Shadow Weaver uses some weird magic to create some shadow spies to send after Adora. Yes, the shadow spies. And they like they do this little thing where like they kind of make these little whispery noises while they fly by, and I I thought that was like kinda cute. That was a cute little touch. So clearly Shadow Weaver is gonna be trying to keep an eye on Adora here. Or several, as it turns out. Lots, uh, lots of shadowy eyes. Lots of shadowy eyes. I'm sure that's not going to come up in like the next episode or like two episodes from now. No, probably not. Yeah. Uh, but with that, um, I believe uh, we're about to head into the spoiler zone. You would be correct. Of course, as always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Podcast of Power. You can email us uh, at potofpower at gmail.com with any questions, comments, fan art of Hordak slamming some Diet Mountain Dews. I bet he loves that. Yeah, no, Hordak 
Hordak subsists almost entirely off of Diet Mountain Dew. He's he's kind of why he's so pale. Yeah, he's very pale. He needs to he needs to get some vitamin D. He needs to switch to Sunny D is the thing. He needs to, he needs to slam some Code Red or perhaps some Live Wire. Ah, there's Leaf. no need to limit yourself to the to the wastes, Hordak. There's a there's a whole world of Mountain Dew out there for you. Got some Mountain Dew voltage in there. I think that would kill him. I don't think you're supposed to. <laughs> that's that's just like electrical waste or something. It it is, but it's um, delicious. And whenever I drink it, I feel like I'm dying. Yes, I I feel like that about um most Mountain Dew. Um, particularly anything that was under the Amped uh brand name. Oh boy, that's just nuclear waste. That that's is just like liquid that, plutonium. Yeah, that's like Fallout Three level nuclear waste. Yeah, so this when you the uh, the water is in Fallout is all actually all Mountain Dew amped, but this is not the Mountain Dew cast. This is uh, the the podcast of power. And for those of you who will not be joining us in the spoiler zone, I bid you farewell. Enjoy the rest of your day. For those of us who will be following us here, we'll see you on the other side. See you there. So, we have a few characters that are introduced in this episode that are not necessarily expanded upon yet, but I think we should talk about them, and that is Natasha and Spinnerella. Natasha and Spinnerella, the Cloud Wives. Oh, I love the Cloud Wives. It's interesting how they, they, they seemed reticent almost to sort of use them in the earlier seasons, right? They were yeah. sort of relegated to the side. They only had a few a few lines in the early seasons, but they're very prominent in seasons four and five. Yeah, for sure. Like they they made a very large um, presence in in four and five, and I think a large part of that is due to I think again kind of just dealing with studio stuff. Uh, my understanding is that there was actually quite an uphill battle um on the production side of things trying to get get this uh this representation kind of through the door and um i don't think they were 100 percent confident that they could actually get it through at the end of the day uh to where they really wanted it to be and actually i think the other day you brought up something really interesting about um natasa and spinnerella's um character models Right. So I've been seeing this passed around a lot on on Twitter recently after the after the show is over and I wasn't sure where this text I was uh, that's attached to this post is from but uh it's probably from this Noel Stevenson memoir that you were talking about if I had to if I had to take a guess. Mm-hmm. Because what it is is assumedly Noel Stevenson there there's no real like attribution to the text but it's 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 her talking about how when she was designing Spinnerella and Natasha, she wanted to make sure that they were very explicitly married, but she wasn't sure how textual the network would allow her to be with that. 
So what she did was she sort of created some Ethereum uh, marriage lore in, within the character designs of Spinnerella and Natasa that is not, it's never brought up in the show, but if you look at the two uh, characters there, you'll notice that their necklaces seem to match the, the other uh, character. Uh, Spinnerella is wearing like a silver necklace with a blue j uh, jewel in the middle of it, and Natasa is wearing like a, a a pair of purple bands as a necklace, and those are clearly like they clearly s swapped these. They clearly switched in, in some kind of exchange, and and that is a very it's it's a great sort of visual cue to to for this relationship that they wasn't they weren't sure they could make textual, but thankfully they were able to. Yes, very thankfully. Oh, it's it's so good. I I love their relationship so much. Like they It's very fun. They're they're so fun. They're so cute. I I love them both dearly. Um I they're the episode where they're just being very very like overly competitive with each other like ah, uh, you know, Natas is like oh, I got I got more more bot kills than you. Like that was that was so fun and of course um and of course, the the payoff um, for them is is just wonderful. I I do kind of wish that you know their um, their on screen uh, kiss at the very end um, would have been on screen just a little bit longer without. There was Swiftwind. so much to get to. Yeah, without Swiftwind kind of getting in front, but like there was a lot to get to, and it was still a fucking really good little uh, little scene. They're, after they get Spinnerella unshipped, they're making out on every single intro splash page. Oh yeah, they they definitely are, and uh, and it's it's really good. And and even um, when they're in um, oh, what is the Mushroom People Village called? Irlandia. Irlandia, Ireland. So when they're in Ireland, mm. um, they um, they have the the I love you scene um, that of course. Um, the other main couples get uh, a little bit later in the uh, in the show, um, but they but they get their you know big I love you scene, and I thought that was that was a really that was a really really interesting like way of setting it up. I think you know using using these two characters that we have like already been established as being very very married um, to set up the uh, the kind of dominoes to fall later for both uh, Catcher and Dora and Bow and Glimmer. Right, it's very smart. Um, to speak a little bit more on that, the, the reason that post keeps going around that I keep seeing is because there is that future flash that Adora has in Heart Part 2, mm -hmm. where she sees uh, the future ver visions of her and Catcher and Glimmer and Bow and Catra is wearing her little wing belt buckle on her shirt. Oh my god, I didn't notice that! She's wearing the wing belt buckle on her shirt, and in Season 5, She-Ra has a headband that looks basically identical to Catra's in terms of design and yes. shape. Yes, yes, that was... I I think we talked about that in the uh, in the first episode, Spoiler Zone, but... um. I, yeah, I'm happy to revisit that because oh my god, that was so good. Just like uh, the the little elements of all of her friends in her new design, and you know, Katra, Katra's face mask thingy being like the new the new tiara uh, was really good. Um, also, 
Uh, very funny, I think, to make that the uh, the bit of the motif that ended up being Katra's, um, seeing as that's, like, the thing that she makes fun of the most for most of the show. Like, constantly calling Adora's tiara stupid. It's pretty good. It's very choice. It's, it's, it's so choice. But, um... We'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about that, like, what, 30 second long scene quite a bit, but man, is it good. Those designs uh, are utterly fantastic. Really, really good. Just like, just next level. And in the the future flash too, like Katra's Katra's over the shoulder jacket look. Oh my god, it is shoulder capes. It is next level should make a comeback. It's it, they need to and like listen somebody out there needs to figure out how to have it so that you can wear a sport jacket over your shoulder or shoulders uh, without it falling off. Um, I you know I will gladly contribute to the Kickstarter for some reverse suspenders if uh, if if that is what the solution is. We gotta figure. We gotta put the brightest minds on the planet together. We gotta figure this out. We gotta, we gotta do it. We gotta do it for the cosplayers, and we gotta do it for the lesbians. Like both of these, both of us, we we need, we need it. Future Adora and Catcher are going to become a very popular couples cosplay now, and we need to prepare for this. We do. We very much do. Gotta figure it out. Um, let's talk a little bit about the supporting cast in this show because. The main cast is, of course, very, very much well-developed, very, very layered characters, especially Catra, Shadow Weaver, and Adora in particular, but also Glimmer and Bo. Mm-hmm. Um, the the side prin- the, the princesses and like some of the 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 side horde characters aren't quite as developed or layered, but they are all they are still very well utilized and very well. They have great arcs for their scale. Yes, exactly. And I think the scale um, is a really important thing here. Like, so we've mentioned contemporaries to the show a couple of times. Um, and we've kind of tried to tiptoe around it a little bit and not mention anything in specific. Um, we're putting Steven Universe on blast. We're going to put Steven Universe on blast for a second here. I'm sorry. We're going to do it. I'm that not sorry. show has a very large supporting cast problem because it doesn't seem to understand what supporting cast actually means you know everybody seemingly gets um infinite like attention to do their own little thing but yet at the same time nowhere near enough to actually complete the arcs that they've been given like they're given really heavy really big arcs to carry and they just don't have the screen presence or the time to pull it off and it's and it's sad to see but in Shira, you don't really run into the same problem you kind of have um the supporting cast is treated uh with respect and they're treated um like they're all given their own arcs right like um perfuma has her own character arc that she goes through but it's not as heavy of a burden for her to meet you know she's got less screen time she's got less lines she's got less um time to interact with the audience you know she's not in every episode so they scale they gave her an arc that is suitably sized to her character and they do that with the entire supporting cast 
and I think that works so well. I'm really glad they decided to do that. And often they they tie the supporting cast's arcs together. Like, Scorpia and Perfuma kind of share an arc. Yeah. Perfuma doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the one that changes the most over that arc. Like, she's she's fairly set here in this first episode. Uh, mostly she'll just get a little bit less granola-y. Um, a little less granola-y and a little more confident. A little more feeling like she can fight and actively influence the world around her but also that she's allowed to i mean you know natasa kind of gets into that in uh season five episode 10 10 where she's you know outlining everyone's weaknesses and you know she she explains hey you know your thing is that you're really afraid of unleashing your full power because you know you don't want to hurt your friends or anything and um you know that's that's one of the that's one of the things that they they do address but again it is a suitably sized arc and it's resolved completely you know nothing gets left behind really i don't think i don't think anybody's character arc gets left in a spot that sucks at no. the end at the end of the show it's either completely resolved or resolved to a level that is satisfying and that post-canon material can uh, take past the 95-yard line. Like, let's take a look at Mermista as another example. Mermista is like, you know, the sort of um, April from Parks and Rec archetype where she's very aloof, she's too cool for all this nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. But her arc is all about her learning to just, you know kind of be goofy she's yeah you just set a boat on fire and see what it feels like yeah oh my god that's <laughs> that bit is so good it's about her not like she's always she'll always be a little bit exasperated by seahawks nonsense but it's about learning to embrace that sort of vibe it's about learning to loosen up and 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 sort of um not not feel so above it all yeah go with the flow a little bit you could say frosta is, is is sort of about wanting to be treated as an equal and not as a kid and and she is in her first episode i remember her being very distant and very like trying way too hard oh yeah very co very cold very steely-eyed um like no fun allowed kind of situation but her real personality is that she's all about fun. She's a she's an angry little Fortnite gamer who oh, loves yes. to punch things. She is she is our special little Fortnite gamer, and she's wonderful, and she does very much like to punch things all the time. She's brimming with bloodlust. She's ready to go. She is, and she is she is a boundless uh, bundle of energy. She absolutely uh, like night and day. From, from when she's introduced to when we kind of see her towards uh, the end. Like, she is so out of her shell, and she gets to really express herself, and she gets to fight. Um, she kind of has, like, when she's introduced, she's not really, like, she doesn't get to fight. She doesn't get to, like, be, like, use her powers very much. She kind of has her royal guard to lean on for that. Um you know, and then it, uh, but, but she, uh, she gets the chance to kind of get out there in the world and show people what she can do. And, uh, it's, it's a really satisfying arc for her, I think. 
Right. I think you know the, we we'll talk a little bit about Scorpia next next time because that is her debut episode. Oh um, yeah, that's true. I I would love to touch on Scorpia more. We'll save that one for later. But to 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 circle it back to Steven Universe, the main issue is that there was a sort of like the the Beach City episodes often got way too heavy. I think the early Beach City episodes are the best ones in the whole show. Like like mm-hmm. all episodes overall, not just not just the side character stuff, but just like completely overall. Like Frybo is a great episode. I'll watch Frybo anytime. What a fun episode. Yeah, Frybo is pretty fun. Um but also the Beach City residents weren't like dealing with stuff that was as heavy as Steven was dealing with. No, exactly. Like, it was, like, kind of a refreshing... Like, when the B-plot was introduced very early on in that show, like, the B-plots were, you know, they were B-plots. They were lighter, and they weren't as serious, and they had, you know, much tinier arcs that could be self-contained to an episode or a handful of episodes, and just... You know, the supporting cast felt more like a supporting cast in those those earlier seasons of the show. Uh, that did not stay that way for that long. I think the turning point was that episode where Sadie, Lars, and Steven get stranded on that island. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was definitely, like... That was the bit where they started really, like, trying to make every they wanted to basically give each character in the show an episode in which they were the main character and i think that that's something that can work sometimes for certain supporting cast members i think that works really well doesn't work for literally everybody though no there are episodes of this show where the supporting cast gets a, a much bigger spotlight. Like, um, The Perils of Peekaboo is a huge example, because that is the main cast is barely in that episode. It's mostly yes. hanging with Scorpia, Perfuma, Mermista, and Seahawk while they're doing a fun adventure. Yes, and that and that they did that really well. Because, like, again, I think it is totally good and it works really well to do an episode where you make the supporting cast the main cast. I think that works really well, but you have to do it in moderation. It's like it's like we always say with Seahawk the character, right? Seahawk is kind of this show's funny animal companion in a way. He is like he, you you have to be very careful with where and when you deploy the Seahawk. Uh, he's but... big. He's goofy. He has a running a running gag. You can't use him for everything. You have to use him in the right episodes. You can't really put Seahawk in big dramatic episodes. Exactly. You have to know exactly when to use him and uh, and when his big bombastic uh, attitude is going to be an asset um, to uh, to the episode. And that's that's another thing, right? Is that they really took this approach to the show where everything is very it feels very deliberate it feels even if not necessarily like all this was planned out from day one kind of thing because almost certainly it wasn't um but you know that every decision is made 
purposefully that you know they're not just throwing in um a character or situation because they think it would be cute or it would be funny it has it serves a purpose it serves a a greater uh motive um in the show and i think you know you see that in uh the prince peekaboo episode you have um this really fun scenario of them being like spies in a speakeasy under the ocean and they've all got fun like roaring 20s outfits and it's it's a fun it's a fun time but it also serves uh, a greater purpose you know it's fleshing out their characters it's you know working on completing their character arcs i think like the line where mermista you know reveals hey i set a boat on fire um just to see what it's like i feel like that actually was kind of the completion of mermista's arc i feel like that was the resolution where she like she did finally let loose and she's she's embraced the seahawk the seahawkiness into her life embrace the seahawk no yeah absolutely i mean that episode is very important for setting up scorpia's character arc as well yeah it you know it kind of isn't i'm not sure uh, is it the resolution of scorpia's arc i would argue it might be actually because it's it kind is. of yeah it's kind of where where she realizes that she's like she can be confident she can get things done she can, she can do this she can do this she can do this 100 percent. and you know her kind of sacrificing herself at the end there for uh for everybody and uh for perfume of course was uh was a really really good um really emotional scene i i really like that scene a lot i um that was the scene that sold me on Scorfuma, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah? I mean, I think that's what that episode was made for, right? Oh, yeah, like, for sure. I mean, it was made for that, and also made for the bit where Seahawk and Mermista have a fun time beating up um, three quarters of the entire patronage of uh, the restaurant, which mm-hmm. was pretty good. Right. And we could talk more about some of the other supporting cast and their arcs, like Entrapta or Hordak, but we're gonna save those for later. Yeah, the the Entrapta episode is coming up, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a wild ride. Honestly, I don't even know if I would count Entrapta as supporting cast. I think she might just be main cast. I think she becomes main cast. She kind of she starts supporting, and she kind of gets upgraded. She's like main horde cast for a while there. Yeah. But I think there's one more thing we need to hit here, and it's some it's some Shadow Weaver stuff, as always. There's always, oh, as always. There's always more to talk about with this character. Um, in particular, we're, it, sh- her connection to the Black Garnet is really interesting, lore-wise. We're, let's get into some lore here. Yeah, let's Because let's it also do, ties in with her lore. character very well. It does. It, it really does. So Shadow Weaver, her whole thing, she wants to be the coolest, biggest, most powerful sorcerer in all of Ethereum history. She wants to be the best. Yes. Uh, unfortunately for her, she isn't um, and won't be uh, because Micah exists. Yeah, Micah outclasses her in every way. He is the best sorcerer. And and so that the Light Spinner episode is, is about her sort of trying to overcome that. And this Black Garnet stuff is also her trying to overcome this sort of, like, inadequacy. Um, it's, it's something that, once again, ties her in with Catra. 
yes. Uh, they, again, really good foils for each other. Like, I, I really like their interactions. I think that, like, the way that they kind of mirror each other's insecurities and, and everything, how, like, Shadow Weaver... I mean, even she kind of explicitly just says this um, um, in, in her death scene in which she's like, you know, it's too late for me, but, you know, you you have a future. You know, it's like Shadow Weaver is what Katra had the potential uh, to become this, you know, person who is utterly consumed uh, by self-interest and uh, by plotting and conniving and, and, and you know, ambition just pure, unfiltered ambition. And um, they both have really similar places that they come from with why they, uh, they they feel the way they do, why they feel like they have to be uh, the best, why they have to prove themselves, why they have to become better than everybody else at any cost. Um, so it's, it's very interesting watching them kind of, kind of foil each other in that way. It really is. Um... The, the Light Spinner episode is such an interesting episode of this show. I can't wait so we can dig into that one. Oh, for sure. But Shadow Weaver and the Black Garnet is... So, the, the, no one has been able to tap into a runestone other than one of the Princesses of Power, who were, of course, were the ones t designed to tap into the runestones, right? Mm -hmm. The first ones literally created the runestones for that. Yeah, it's kind of kind of the whole the whole deal there. Shadow Weaver, so consumed by like I need to unlock greater heights of magic. I need to surpass Micah. She becomes the first sorcerer to tap into a runestone, but it is not a stable effect at all. No, it seems very much like it uh actually takes quite a lot out of her and um it seems like the the Black Garnet actually does fight her a little bit, um, and uh, she kind of has to go and uh, reconnect to it and like reestablish this connection she's she's built to it um, on on the regular. Like she needs to kind of go back and kind of kind of whip it into into submission and let it uh, kind of flow um, into her again. And I think it's the um, like she's kind of got like a control gem on her mask uh situation that's kind of funneling the power into her right and, and after she's cut off from the black garnet after season one she is constantly pursuing new avenues of power right yeah like it leaves her frail and powerless and literally dying after she teleports out of the fright zone yeah. And so she starts siphoning power off of Glimmer at one point. Mm. She is is growing a garden with which she can use to to do spells. Yeah. Um. It's all very interesting in how all, uh, every moment she is she is always only serving herself in her own ends. Exactly. Even things that seem so benign and so like innocuous, like the flower garden. Of course, it's all it's all you know suited to an end it's none of it is accidental or frivolous i mean with with very minimal exception like you know the daisies she just finds them delightful like there are little moments where you know she's revealed to actually kind of have an amount of a soul like it's, it's tiny and shriveled up and kind of at the bottom of the jar there but it's it's in there somewhere in there somewhere you're gonna have to 
do do some excavation to get to it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like we're gonna keep talking about Shadow Weaver every single one of these segments. Like every new episode brings up new things about her character that I definitely that it informs so much of it. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like she's she's got so much material to talk about, and she's in so many of the episodes that it's like you know there's always something to kind of kind of pick at and and analyze a little bit which uh i mean it's kind of the point of the show a little bit uh at least our show anyway is uh finding all of the things uh to to analyze and uh doing it at length for over an hour and even though often we will come to the same conclusion it's reinforcing the idea that this show is written in such a way that it always works towards a holistic like arc for all of these characters all of these characters stay so consistent and all of their arcs are so perfectly planned and perfectly executed and that's not something you get in something like steven universe or any of those other shows no you super don't like the uh, I think we said in the first episode um, that, like, this is probably one of the tightest shows um, we've ever seen, and I absolutely stand by that. I think it is it is exceedingly tight. There There is almost no air gaps uh, in this in this television program. You know, it, it is it is really, really good in that way where it's like, you know, they wasted they wasted no space, no time. Uh, they made sure that everything was in service of uh, kind of the the greater the greater goals um, at play here, and that's why even the most filler of filler never feels that bad. Like it, like even the weakest episodes in in the whole show, and there aren't that many of them. Um, still still are good i i wouldn't skip any of them i think is no the thing. there's no skippable episodes this is not like a clone war situation where it's like oh here's a here's a jar jar episode that you can just sort of skip this is yeah. this is nothing you don't have to watch this one no 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 there's none of those here um every episode i think is is i'm trying to think which ones i think are the weakest and it's really hard it's really, really hard. Like, I'm sitting here trying to think, too. Like, The weakest <sighs> episode, in my opinion, might be the season four premiere. And that's just because I don't think... Like, I know the point is that everyone's being really annoying, but it also just is kind of annoying. Yeah. Which one was the season four premiere again? That's the one where they're trying to plan Glimmer, Glimmer's coronation oh, after Angela's death. Yeah, right. Um... I think the conclusion is pretty strong, but it's just it's just a little bit annoying. It's a it's a little annoying. I think that there's it it's a little annoying and I think there's like some things that like the characters do that that not that they're out of character, but it's like these are things, these are aspects of these characters that have been previously yeah, previously resolved, you know? Right. They they wouldn't necessarily be doing that thing that they're doing. Everyone is in high a peak comedy mode, which is like a weird. It's a weird way to start off uh, the season after the portal episodes. Yeah, I. It's like it's like if um episode one of book four of Korra was like thirty minutes of Bolin jokes. Oh God, that. Because one of the things I I find so strong about Korra season three is the way that it just ends on Korra sort of silently crying and the way that it carries that mood through to the to book four yeah 
Um, and I, I just feel like that one, the, the, the season four premiere is, I think, the weakest episode of the show. And it's not even that, it's not bad. It's very good still. No, for sure. I can't think of any others off the top of my head that are, like, super weak. Um, uh, uh, I can't, I can't really either. I guess, like, um, there's the... The winter episode, the second Drunkadora episode. Nope, not that one. That one's no, good that as hell. No, that one's that's good. I don't know. Uh, it's listen. The show's actually very good, as it turns out. It's it's not entirely. There are no filler episodes of the show. Like you might think, what you're watching. Oh, this this doesn't this doesn't affect anything. This is just filler. No. No, it all it's all very relevant. And honestly, even the annoying stuff in the season four premiere, like it all kind of made sense at the end and got tied together where it's like, oh, everyone's just really, really, really anxious and they don't want to talk about um, Angela, uh, Angela dying. Right. Um, like it's <laughs> it's all tied together in a way that makes it feel worth it. Like, yeah, the, the scene in the cave uh where glimmer breaks glimmer and adora like break down is really strong yeah that's that is a very strong scene show's pretty good um yeah uh show is pretty good i mean if that if anything is the tagline of this podcast i feel like show's pretty good would be it it is our central thesis i would say yes yes it is uh, but with that, I think uh, that wraps it up for uh, this episode of the Podcast of Power. Um, I have uh, been your host, Jane. And I have been your other host, Nero. And we'll see you next week for episode five, The Seagate. Until then, catch you later. Catch you later.